We have three brothers who will be speaking to us. First, we'll have Brother Nathan come. Then after that, we'll sing a hymn. Then Brother Matthew Eastland. And after that, a hymn. And then Brother Charlie will come and speak to us. So, Brother Nathan, if you'd like to come forward now. It's a great privilege to be in the house of God and to hear what he has for us. I believe that we're all here knowing and believing that whatever the Lord's laid on the hearts of the speakers is what the Lord has for us. I appreciate everything that Mr. Eastland said in the first service. I appreciate what Eric said. It was great. It leads in very well with what I'd like to speak on. It's amazing that many speakers, one spirit, and what it can do for many people. If you turn with me to the book of Job for a leading verse, Job 1 and verse 8 we're going to look at. There's been several circumstances over the last couple of weeks that have convicted me on this subject, and if the Lord would be merciful and I can give some of that conviction back to you, then we'll have accomplished what we set out to do. In Job 1, verse 8, there's a verse that we all know very well, and I want to look at it from a little bit of a different angle. Job, chapter 1, verse 8, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? I want to focus on the fact that the Lord God of heaven looked down from his high and mighty throne and in front of Satan himself called out a man that had obviously led a life that was worthy to be called out. Turn with me to Psalm 26. Psalm 26, verse 1, shows the heart and life of another man. Psalm 26, 1 reads, Judge me, O Lord, for I have walked in mine integrity. I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. I've been greatly convicted over the last few weeks from these two passages and several others, and as I mentioned some circumstances that have come about in my life and the lives of those that I've been spending some time with. I want the Lord to look down from heaven and ask ask Satan, have you considered my servant Nathan? I want him to look down from heaven and ask the same about all of us in here. I want to go to the Lord in prayer and be able to say, for I have walked in mine integrity. I want to talk to you about spiritual exercises and how we can have lives that will match up with those two verses. I heard about a couple that lost a child after a few days that it was born, and I was greatly convicted by their ability to overcome such a situation. They turned it over to the Lord, and in the chapel of the hospital where the child had passed away, they had a worship service. How do you do that? How do you have a heart and a mind to be able to do that? I tell you today, it's a life of spiritual exercises. We can't count on our pastor and this church to be our life of godly living. It's his job to teach us how to do it. It's this house where we come to learn more about it. But it's up to us as individuals to do it. We've heard recently about a vision of God. Our pastors desire that each of us would have a vision of God. Not a fake vision, not a vision of being slain in the spirit, but a true vision, a life-changing vision 
a vision that would cause us to go out and to live for him. Bear with me for a moment as I speak about the world and some of the exercises they do and why. Most of the time it's for a goal. They've set themselves some personal standard they hope to meet. Think with me on a marathon. Many people have set out with the intention of completing a marathon. To complete a marathon, you don't think about it. You don't wonder how it's going to happen. You get out on the road and you take a step. And then you take another step. And you keep taking steps until you can complete a marathon. It's that daily effort to complete that marathon. And they do it to have accomplished a marathon, but yet they put forth much great daily effort. They do it to have a healthy lifestyle. Surprising the things they'll eat on a daily basis to maintain that healthy lifestyle. And they do it just for that. They do it for physical strength. They want to continue to improve their their physical strength. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9. And let's see why we should be considering spiritual exercises. 1 Corinthians 9, the last few verses, is some of my favorite verses in the Bible because they it uses an analogy of someone that's going to set out to do a goal, people of the world. And it says in 1 Corinthians 9, looking at starting at verse 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep my body under and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. I want to focus on the fact that the world has their goals. The world is willing to be temperate in all things to accomplish theirs. Are we willing to be temperate in spiritual exercises to accomplish ours? 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. Some of these I'm going to try to get to and read for sake of time. But 2 Timothy 4, verse 7 gives us another reason. 2 Timothy 4, 7 says, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. What a better goal, what a better prize to be won than the accomplishment of completing a marathon. I want to break up the rest of this into two sections. The first section is the reasons we should exercise, and the second would be what kind of exercises those should be. We're in a war. Paul talks about it often in the New Testament in his epistles that we are in a war, and we are to fight that good fight every day. There may be trials coming. There most likely will be trials in each of our lives within the next couple of days or weeks. We don't know when they're going to happen, but this is how we prepare for them. We want to have integrity when we pray. The Lord's not going to hear a prayer of someone that hasn't put forth the daily efforts through their spiritual exercises. We don't know when the Lord's going to test us to see if we truly love him. And if we haven't strengthened ourselves through exercise, then we are going to fail when that test comes. Right. We want a relationship with the Lord. A godly relationship should be at the forefront of our minds each and every day, and therefore we should be exercising towards it. Right. 
We want to be a help for the church. What help are you going to be with the church if you haven't exercised yourself in spiritual matters? Right. We want to be able to answer questions of those without that might ask a reason of the hope that's within us or some piece of doctrine. If you haven't spiritually exercised yourself, you won't have an answer. We want to be able to deal with any kind of tragedy the Lord might bring in our lives with a godly attitude. Right. Too much of the world finds themselves in some part of a tragedy and can't handle it. Their spiritualness breaks down because they haven't exercised it enough to be able to deal with it. We want to lay up for ourselves a crown of righteousness, as we read in Second Timothy. And we want something to fall back on when the Lord does decide to bring any of these to us. If you have run every day, when it's time to run the marathon, you'll be ready. If you have spiritually exercised yourself every day, when the Lord brings a trial into your life, you'll be ready to deal with it. Let's go over some exercises. We know these. I fear that we know them too well and that we run over them and don't remember to do them each and every day. Daily prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5. I'd like you to turn there because I I fear that I'm going to say the words and we run over them so quickly we forget the importance of these simple, short exhortations. 1 Thessalonians 5 gives us a great outline for our daily exercise. I'm only going to mention a couple of them, but there's a section right here that is a manual for how you ought to be exercising daily. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17, when it comes to prayer, it says to pray without ceasing. That sounds like something we should be involved in daily. It goes on to say that we are to, in verse 18, in everything give thanks. We ought to be thankful each and every day. There was a message that was preached to us many years ago that said to stop thinking and start thinking. Too often Amen. you find yourself not exercising yourself in spiritual matters because you're thinking too much. We need to stop thinking and start thinking. That right there is a spiritual exercise. Right. We need to have daily Bible reading. I'm going to go back to Psalm 119. It was used much in the first service. But it's got some unbelievable little tidbits for us to, to think about daily. Right. But Psalm 119.11 was already used once. And I'm actually going to use verse 9 and verse 11 to make sure that I get the young men of whom I am part. 119.9 says, Wherewithal should a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. And I'm right. going to add daily. By taking heed thereto according to thy word daily. And verse 11, thy word have I hidden mine heart that I might not sin against thee. To hide something in your heart, you have to do it on a daily basis. Or it's not hidden anymore, it's disappeared out of your heart. Do something for someone else. Acts 20, 35. This is just a simple exhortation to us all about acts that we should all be involved in on a day-to-day basis. If you find yourself spiritually weak... One of the things that can lift you up quicker than just about anything else is to get outside yourself and do something for somebody else. Acts 20, verse 35 says, I have showed you all things how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Another daily exercise. We ought to ask forgiveness and therefore forgive others the trespasses they have done against us. And the Lord's Prayer, he tells us, this is something that we ought to be involved in. 
If you've asked the Lord for forgiveness and truly done it with a sincere heart and then gone out and shown how sincere your heart was by your willingness to forgive others, that is a daily exercise that we ought to be engaged in. We ought to be praising the Lord on a day-to-day basis. Psalm 34, verse 1, states this exercise for us. Psalm 34, 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. The word continue has been mentioned several times already. Continue means what? We ought to do it once and then not stop doing it, to continue with it on a day-to-day basis. This is one that's convicted me much over the last couple of days. Resisting temptation is a daily exercise that we ought to be involved in. Sadly enough, we read the Lord's Prayer and we quickly run through, Oh, Lord, leave me not in temptation, deliver me from evil. But have you made it a daily practice to go out and resist a temptation? Have you woken up in the morning and thought, Lord, today I'm going to let a temptation pass by me instead of succumbing to it? Because there's going to be one every day. I can guarantee it there'll be one every day. The, the more righteous you walk with the Lord, the more temptations there'll be because you'll be involved in those daily exercises that you'll be tempted not to perform. I said it once, I say it again because it's probably the most important part of our daily walk with the Lord, and that's to be consistent and to continue. John 8:31 has a verse that brings this to pass very clearly. John 8, verse 31 states, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, if you continue in his word. Again in John chapter 15 and verse 9, it states one of the exercises I mentioned and tells us to continue in it. John 15 verse 9 states, And the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. It's, it's very important to understand that, that spiritual exercises done once don't do any good. It's spiritual exercises done on a continual basis. Getting out in the street and trying to run 26.2 miles isn't going to do you any good if you're trying to accomplish one and you know you can't. What's going to do you good is running a half mile every day and then a mile every day and then two miles every day until you work your way up to that point. We heard this morning about how we're not to be children anymore, tossed to and fro. We're not to be only able to put up with milk. We ought to be able to use meat. To be able to to use meat, you have to strengthen yourself on a daily basis to be able to absorb the meat and use it. If If the only thing you get from what I have for you is today to make a Lord's Day resolution, that tomorrow you'll start a daily exercise or continue one that you're already in. That That is my goal. You have to make it a priority. If you don't make it a priority, it won't happen. As with regular exercise, if you don't make a point to get out and do it or pick a time of the day that you're going to do it, it won't happen. The day will disappear. It'll be night. It'll be time for bed, and you'll have lost an entire day. The number one reason to, to be involved in daily spiritual exercises comes from Ephesians 6. And it was a passage that I was planning on speaking to you on until I had been convicted on this. But Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God. And that whole passage stems from one verse, and it's Ephesians 6, verse 10. 
It starts in Ephesians 6.10. I'm going to read a couple of verses and close with this. But this is the reason why we need to be engaged in spiritual exercises. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. If we want to be able to stand in that evil day, it takes a day-by-day regimen of spiritual exercises. I am uh, thankful to begin with the fact that it's already been stated by Nathan a little bit, that the Lord has a way of making things fit together, has a way of having certain things brought up that uh, save you time and groundwork because they are already there in front of others. I'm thankful for some verses of scripture that were read to the men this morning before we prayed that will be helpful, I hope, in demonstrating some of what I want to talk about and uh, for the sermon this morning and what Nathan just said because they all fit together in some ways. And uh, it's the Lord's goodness to me in helping to explain what I have for you. We live in a day when there is a worldly virtue that runs closely with a spiritual virtue yet that worldly virtue is even disappearing and that's the virtue of self-control we have people who act as they see fit when they see fit they do whatever they please because they have no self-control they blame it on others they weren't hugged enough as a child or maybe they were hugged too much they weren't loved properly They blame it on all sorts of other things. And we, brethren, are called to be different. We are to be lights in this world. We are to be different enough that when others in this world who are children of God look at us, they can look and say, there is something different about you. Why? We are to rule our spirits, brethren. That's what I want to talk to you about is ruling your spirit. Proverbs 16.32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. That's where this phrase comes from, ruling your spirit. Now, first, I have to ask, you know, to explain fully, what is your spirit? That's your internal feelings, your affections, your temperament, and there are many other terms that we would all understand. It is the inner you. It's not necessarily what you show to the outside, because... Well, it is a worldly virtue that is in some way still present. We all know how to behave in front of others. But we have to remember that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Amen. What do we have inside of us? What is our internal being? That is our spirit. Mm-hmm. Scriptural synonyms can also be seen to be mind, soul, and heart in various passages. While they're used in certain ways with different meanings, that's still synonyms within Scripture. So when you see those words, you should be thinking about What's inside of you? Now, we all understand when someone speaks about someone being very spirited, we're speaking of someone who is maybe a little bit more forceful, a little bit more pressing upon others. Or when someone is sweet-spirited, we understand that's a person whose actions, whose being, is kind and gentle. So it shouldn't be too difficult to understand 
what a spirit is when we're referring to man. Now, we have to remember there are two spirits. There is the spirit that we are naturally born with, the corrupt spirit that comes from Adam, that's in all men. It's sinful. It's drawn to doing what is wrong. That's what it's driven towards. But if you're a child of God, you have a new man within you, a new spirit, one that can please God, unlike the old spirit, one that can choose to do right, to be loving, to be kind. And we have to admit that while we have an old man and a new man, look around, if you're aggressive by nature, your aggression doesn't disappear just because you're a child of God. It's still there. So we have to understand our spirits as children of God still has that corrupt nature there. So we have to realize that maturity, according to this world, is controlling your spirit in public. Everyone knows that children throw temper tantrums. But proper adults in society, as we should all recognize, control themselves. What we're talking about is more than that, though. We're talking about spiritual maturity, spiritual ruling of your spirit. And what that is, is doing it not because you want to look good to others, not because it's proper, not because it's something that makes you look good, but because you're wanting to please God. That is the purpose of ruling our spirit for a spiritual aspect. And it is a choice. It's commanded in the word of God. So God doesn't command us to do things that we can't do. He doesn't ask of us more than we're able. It's a choice. So not a single person here can sit here and say, but it's just who I am. It doesn't matter. You have a choice. So what can your spirit do? If you would turn to Proverbs 14, 29, um, I have a couple other passages on what your spirit can do. But just stay in the book of Proverbs because there's a lot of them there. Proverbs 14 and verse 29. What can your spirit do? He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding, but he that is hasty of spirit exalteth folly. Right. If you have a hasty spirit, one that is not patient, doesn't think, you are exalting folly. You do foolish things. That's what your spirit can do. It can represent you as a fool because you're hasty. It's a hasty spirit. Now, you don't have to turn to it. Malachi 2.15 and 16 talks about a treacherous spirit. A treacherous spirit from a husband towards a wife. Not wanting the wife, not treating the wife properly. Leading to the wife being upset, crying before the Lord. Having a treacherous spirit destroys relationships. It destroys marriages. That's something that we can all, that any man can do. And it's something we're told not to have any part in. It's a treacherous spirit. Look at Proverbs 11.13. A talebearer revealeth secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit concealeth the matter. You can have not just a negative spirit, but a faithful spirit. A faithful spirit is trustworthy. It keeps things that everyone doesn't need to know. It helps others by being trustworthy. It's faithful. Your spirit can change your reputation. If you have a faithful spirit, you will be known as being trustworthy. Now we have several passages that actually contrast spirits within the same verses. Proverbs 15. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 15, and we'll also go to 17. 
Proverbs 15:15. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. Amen. You can have an afflicted spirit. You could have a spirit that is troubled, that is upset, and all your days are going to be miserable. Everything about your life, even the good things, if you have an afflicted spirit, will be miserable to you. But in contrast, you have a merry heart. It's a merry spirit. Everything could go wrong. But if you have a merry spirit, your life is a continual feast. Amen. Look at 16 and 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. You can have an attitude, a merry attitude that says, I have just a little, but I have the Lord. And it's better than having a lot. It's better than having a life filled with plenty. Verse 17. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therewith. Again, we're talking about that spirit is so important that you can eat a lowly, humble salad as opposed to the best meal that you can find described in Scripture. You contrast those two, and one is better when you have a merry spirit, when you have a good spirit. But if you have hatred, it ruins it all. It doesn't matter if you have the best. That's the power of the spirit. And then turn to Proverbs 18 and verse 14. The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit who can bear. Now let me speak to a moment for those out there who have a streak of melancholy in them. Have you ever had a wounded spirit? Have you ever been unbearably sad? No matter what happens around you, it really just can't pick you up because you're wounded. You are so hurt. And I, you know, I think maybe I have a tiny bit of that in me, and I felt it from time to time, probably not as much as some of you, but don't you recognize that feeling that everything just seems so bleak, so horrible. That is a wounded spirit. And yet at the same time, you have contrasted with that the spirit that can sustain his infirmity. A man with serious hurt, with serious trouble, and yet his spirit can keep him going. Instead of tearing him down, it can hold him up. Brethren, the spirit is powerful. What goes on inside of you is powerful. It changes everything around you. Your circumstances are meaningless in comparison to the spirit inside. Amen. So we have a responsibility to rule that spirit, to change how we view things. Now, we have some examples in Scripture of a lack of control, specific men and circumstances. For instance, Moses. Moses had the people of God complaining. And he finally lost his temper and he smote a rock. He didn't stop himself from becoming angry. He didn't rule his spirit that moment. And what did he lose? He lost entry into the promised land. He didn't control himself and he lost the greatest pleasure that he could have had. He didn't get to go see the promised land. That's what losing control of your spirit, even for a moment, for a good man, a humble, meek man, he lost that control and it destroyed a portion of his life. We had Ahab. Ahab wanted a vineyard and he asked Naboth for that vineyard. And Naboth said, no, it's my family's land. How can I sell it? And Ahab went and he 
laid down in bed, and he put his face to the wall and he refused to eat because he just couldn't get what he wanted. Here's a king, a great, powerful king, and he's acting like a child. Is that what you want to be? Is that what anyone should be? It's an example of a lack of control. Turn to 1 Kings in chapter 19. And this is uh, something that hearing the speaking of the men this morning, the uh, verses that were given to us, it stirred me up looking at these chapters to see to see the interesting way that men are, to see the heights to which we can go and then the depths to which we can sink. 1 Kings 19, and we're going to look at the first couple of verses. Now, this is Elijah, who had just done the will of the Lord, had just destroyed his enemies, the enemies of God, the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the groves. He had watched fire, call, he had called fire from heaven down from God right. and had burned the sacrifice. He had shown God mighty. And immediately afterwards, what happens? And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal, how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Here's a man who just stood on the pinnacle and showed God to be mighty. He just demonstrated himself to be a true prophet of a true God and destroyed all those who stood against God and against him. And where is he now? Might as well die. I've been threatened. I'm not, I'm not good enough. Might as well die. And that's not all. If you look at verses 9 and 10, he continued the thought, and he, and he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came, un, came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, only I, and I, excuse me, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I'm all alone, and they want to kill me. God, just end my life. Really? How can you one minute be so strong and one minute the next minute so weak? Well, that's all of us, brethren. If we look inside ourselves, that's all of us. But that's not ruling your spirit. That's weakness in spirit. Brethren, we're called to be better than that. If we face adversity and we break so easily, we're not worthy of the calling we've been given. Then we have some examples of good control in the Bible. We have Job. He lost everything, everything. And he sat down and he worshipped God and he praised him. Now, eventually he gave in when he had friends who continued to pick on him and he became self-righteous and he became depressed. But here's a man who lost everything. And then got sick on top of it. And he glorified God. And he's recorded for all time to see a man that God bragged about. Who do you want to be? 
Do you want to be Elijah who can accomplish great things for God and then the next minute is terrified and wants to die? Or do you want to be Job who lost everything and still glorified God? Right. We have a choice. <coughs> we have James who tells us that we're to take joy in our trials because they help us grow. We're to choose joy in suffering. Turn to 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. We have an example of godly control of the spirit by our brother Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I sought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. He had a painful ailment added to him. And he asked God to take it away. And God's answer was no. Couldn't that very easily lead to discontent? Wouldn't it in some of our hearts? I'll be honest. It might in mine. I can see that happening very easily. Because I see how weak I am. And I hope that some of you can recognize that we would do the same thing. But what does Paul reply? I'll gladly take it. I'll glory in it. I will glory in being weak for God. Look at that choice. Look at that control of oneself. It's not getting depressed. It's not getting angry with God. It's control. It's loving God and taking joy in it. And then, uh, if you go back to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, we have another example. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not despair, excuse me, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Brethren, circumstances happen in our lives. Circumstances that cause sadness, that cause trouble. But we have a choice how we respond. Yes, we can be cast down in this life. We can experience sorrow. Even Jesus wept because he experienced sorrow. But he wasn't destroyed. We see here, speaking of the Lord's servants, they're troubled on every side. Everywhere they turn, there is problems for them. And yet, what is their response? Not distressed. Brethren, these are all choices. These are all things that we are capable of. We are capable of making this choice. So we have seen examples from Scripture of good and bad control. Now we have to ask, how do we control the Spirit? How do we accomplish this? These are ungodly impulses that come from within. Stop them. You have a choice on what you do. Yes, the thought may cross your mind, but as soon as it comes, you you have the option of, do I continue in it or do I put a stop to it right here? 
You have that choice. You don't just let life happen to you. You choose what you're doing with it. Now, I wish I could give you some simple formula. I wish I could give you some easy rule. But you know what? We're all different. There are no easy rules. There are no simple set strategies for accomplishing this because every spirit is different. Every person is different. But there are scriptural principles that can help guide you. Now, as Nathan's already pointed out, in the New Testament, we see lots of comparisons to earthly sports. So if I'm going to use a godly analogy, then why not compare to sports? If you look at it, we have earthly sportsmen who deny themselves enjoyment for the opportunity of winning, and they win something earthly. Yay. We have the opportunity to deny ourselves the slight enjoyment the slight enjoyment of giving in to our wills, of doing wicked things that we maybe enjoy a little bit. We can give that up, not just for unearthly glory, because you know what? If you give those things up and you live a disciplined life, you control your spirit, you'll have a better life here. But you will have glory in the world to come. We have a reward in heaven that is greater than anything on this earth, but it doesn't just end with that. We don't just have heaven. We can live a happy life on this earth. You can be esteemed properly for your self-control because even the world recognizes that when you rule yourself and you don't give in, you are a great person. Romans 13, 14 tells us that we are not to give any space for the flesh. We are not to feed it. We're not to give it strength. Deny your flesh that strength. Don't give it a place. Don't give it a room to start. We don't do what it wants. So if you feel your flesh welling up within you, trying to get you to do something wrong, just don't give it anything. Don't feed it. Don't give it the opportunity. Turn away from it. Now, I'm going to go through some particular problems, and I'll be honest. They're in our congregation. Some of them are in me. But let's think for a moment. What about the critical spirit? Critical of others. Now, let me ask, what good does that do you? You hurt yourself and you hurt the other person. If you criticize, if you're unkind, if you're mean-spirited, you hurt the other person. It's pretty obvious. You cut the other person down. But what does that do to you? Guess what? Everyone's going to hate you. No one will want to be around you. No one will want to be with you because you hurt others. You destroy yourself and you destroy others by being critical. So what should you do? Compliment. Praise. Why can't you say something positive? You know, even the world says, if you have nothing nice to say, say nothing at all. If you have a critical spirit, brethren, why? Praise others. You'll be loved and you will help others. If you have a melancholy spirit, if it's easy for you to be distressed, if it's easy for you to be depressed, to be sad, go spend time with your brethren. Go praise God. You don't have to choose to be sad. You can choose to exalt the Lord. You can choose to say his praises. You can choose to sing. You can choose to do all those things. And guess what? You won't be able to stay melancholy very long if you're exalting God. Because if you focus on him, there is nothing to be depressed about. There is only glory and happiness. That's right. Are you angry? Turn to James 1. 
If you have an angry spirit. You know, brethren, all of us have a little bit of some of these. Some of us have more than others. And if we're going to exist in this congregation, if we're going to exist properly in this world, if we're going to interact with our brethren the way we should, we have to put these things down. We have to keep our bodies under our evil, wicked spirits. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. If you're angry, be slow to it. If you're prone to it, as another passage says, the discretion of a man deferreth his anger. Put it off till later. Put your anger aside. Just let it be for now. Get angry later. You'll realize most of the time that you're not going to get angry at all if you put it off till later. Right. Control your anger. It doesn't do anyone any good. You don't work the righteousness of God with your anger. Amen. Step on it. Again, praise others. Don't be angry with them. Praise them. Find something good. Focus on the good. You have that choice. Don't let it rule you. Fearful. Do you have a fearful spirit? Now, brethren, if you look around at this world, there's many things to be fearful about. There are. But you know what? Why are you looking at the world and not looking at this? If you spend five minutes in this, flip to a random page, you'll find something to tell you that you have nothing to fear. Do you fear men? If God be for us, who can be against us? Do you fear death? He defeated death for you. What do you fear? Do you fear the future? He wrote the future. He made the future. And the ultimate future is eternal glory with him. Why do you fear? Why do you have to be fearful about? Yes, it's natural, but you can control it. You can put that fear aside and choose rather to glorify God. Remember, this book is filled with promises. It's filled with promises for us. Why be afraid? Look at these promises. There's nothing to fear, brethren. And that's just a small sampling of the, of the things that we have within our spirits. But brethren, we can all have that. Just think, you have a choice. You can choose to do something different rather than let your spirit rule you. Right. Now, it's very easy for us to come here, to come out in public, and to rule ourselves. Well, on the inside, we are a cauldron of hatred, of fear, of anger. But brethren, we should start at home. Because out here, your guard is up. Your defenses, your walls, you're ready to make sure that you rule yourself. What do you do when you're at home with your family? When no one else in the outside world sees you? Do you let your temper reign? Do you step on your wife? Do you step on your husband? Do you step on your children? Do you step on your siblings? Why? Rule yourself everywhere. Just remember, if you let it rule you in one place, it will take more. And one day you will show yourself to be the fool you are by letting it rule you elsewhere. And everyone will see. Are you afraid at home? Do you hide in your bed? And are you fearful? Others are going to see it. Don't let it rule you. You have a choice. You have a choice. You can have the strength of God to put that aside. Are you critical at home? Do you mock others? Why should you do that to those who love you most? Who you spend the most time with and you should love the most? Put it aside. 
Now, we can't do this in our own strength, but we can pray to God for that strength. He gives us the strength. It may not be possible in ourselves, but with God, all things are possible. Don't just rely on your own strength. Pray to God for that strength, and you can rule your spirit. And then we are to put on the new man. We had that old man, that old nature that still wants to do those things. But if we put on the new man, we feed it, we strengthen that new man, we can fight more and more effectively against the old man. We have 2 Corinthians 4.16 that tells us that even as our outward man is punished, is hurt, is damaged, the the inner, inner man can be strengthened by God. You can have difficulties on the outside, but God can give you strength in the inner man. We can know what tempts us. We should. And we can avoid those things. We can avoid putting ourselves in a situation where we're tempted to let our spirit rule us. If you know there's something that makes you angry, stay away from it. You don't need it. Do you need an opportunity to sin? No, you don't. Just stay away. You can exercise yourself in prayer, in confession, in reading and singing. Build your new man. We just heard Brother Nathan talk about it. If your new man is being strengthened by you exercising it, your old man will not have the strength to fight it. You can overcome that wicked nature within you because you exercise your new man. And you can choose godly companions to help you. You can choose good people who rule their spirits as well, who will help exhort you to do what's right. In conclusion, brethren, I'm going to give you that first verse again that started all this. Proverbs 16.32 He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. You can be great in this earth. You can be great in the eyes of men and in the eyes of God, which is far more important. You can be greater than someone who conquers a city by ruling your spirit. But there's a contrast, brethren, in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 28, excuse me, 25, 28 says, in contrast, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. You can be great, you can be mighty, you can be mightier than those who accomplish great things in this earth. Or, you could be utterly conquerable. You could be defenseless, you could be weak. Brethren, the choice is ours. Do we want to be mighty and strong and great, or do we want to be defenseless and weak? We have a choice, brethren. Which one will you choose this day? Will you choose to step on that old man and build your new man, or will you choose to let yourself be ruled by it? I have for you a very practical message today. Um... A little bit of introduction. Uh, when I was asked to speak, I was sitting thinking about what I should speak on, and then a news event kind of triggered my thoughts on this process. Uh, some of you may have heard about the budget battle that's been going on with our Congress and our government, and I thought uh, that um, it seemed like our leaders do not have the the backbone to curb the spending. You know, we all practically know in our lives that you can't spend more than you take in. But our government does it and continues to do it, and there's no seeing of them wanting to stop it. So I decided that uh, a little review of Bible economics might be very practical and helpful for this congregation. Um, I'm not going to touch on the points that pertain to work work hard, work smart, be prudent, you know, patient, those type of things. I'm going to address more of the financial practicalities of that sermon. Uh, 
Some of you may have not uh, kept up much on it, don't know. You know, they're talking millions and billions and trillions, and what does it all mean? To put it simply, it's kind of like a man who's sitting down at dinner, very expensive dinner, and he refuses a cup of coffee at the end of dinner. Here this man has sat down and spent $200 on a fancy dinner for him and his wife. And at the end of the dinner, he says, nah, I'll skip the coffee. Well, that's cool. He can do that if he chooses to. But then he goes out and brags the next day about how what a prudent man he is, how frugal he is, how much savings he has, that he or how much savings he does when he saves try saves a two dollar cup of coffee against a two hundred dollar dinner. If he was really that frugal, he probably wouldn't have made a two hundred dollar dinner. But that's what we're arguing about, or the Congress is arguing about. So what do we do as Christians? Since those things are out of our control, uh, Oliver Cromwell had a good saying that's attributed to him, and it says, pray to God and keep your powder dry. And we do that in this congregation. We pray to God for our country, for our rulers, and we do that. But the other half of that is our responsibility. We're to keep our powder dry, and in this case means keep your financial personal house in order. And I'm going to review that with you a little bit. Rule number one, which is always rule number one in everything, and that is obey God. First thing. It is essential to have God on your side. If you don't have God on on your side, he will blow against everything you do. And the rest of the rules won't make any difference. So we've got to have God on our side. Deuteronomy 28.16, in the chapter where he lays out the blessings and curses that he's going to give to Israel, he has a very powerful curse here on their financial aspects. It says here, Cursed shall thou be in the city. Cursed shall thou be in the field. Cursed shall be thy basket and thy store and the fruit of thy land, and the increase of thy kind, and thy flocks of sheep. So it doesn't matter whether you're in the city or they're on the farm, you're going to be cursed if you don't obey God. So you've got to do that. Jesus told us in, the, in Matthew chapter 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Right. And what was he talking about? What shall we eat? What shall we wear? What shall wear in which and what shall we drink? That's what he's talking about. So if you don't obey God, forget it. And then in Matthew ten thirty nine, it says, He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. So if you think you're going to do it your way, the world's way, forget it. You're going to lose it. Do it God's way, and you're going to find your life or be rewarded for it. Rule number two, pay God first. We've got to obey God, and then we've got to pay God. The first use of income must be given, a portion of it given back to God. 
God has given you much. You need to give some of it back to him. Paying, and the way we pay God back is supporting the ministry, the church, helping poor saints and widows. And widow, widows. We can pay God in many ways. One of which is cash in the box over there type thing. But there's other ways that we can pay God. And we should consider that as well. And sometimes we're not always as good at that as it is writing out a check. But if you think about it, all those things that we do around here for the church, for other saints and things like that, are really paying God back. Because he says, if you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. So you're paying God back. So... That sign-up sheet we have in the back for duties around here, if you think about it, if we were all really zealous, there would be a sign-up sheet to get on the sign-up sheet. Yep. And we shouldn't be, that thing should be full if we were really zealous in paying God back. And that's something that you can do if you don't have a lot of Federal Reserve notes. You can volunteer time, and other things. Another way you can pay God back is if you have a bounty of tomatoes or okra or pole beans or whatever. Think of the church members first. Bring it in to them. You have clothes that are too small for your kids. Bring it into the church. Find somebody in the church that can use it. Old furniture, things like that. Think of church members first. That's a way you could pay God first. It says in Proverbs 11.24, There is that scattereth, and yet increases. And there is that withholdeth more than his meat, but tendeth to poverty. The liberal souls shall be made fat, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. So God's going to pay you back. What little bit you give him, God will pay you back for. So it's a very good return on your investment. Rule number three, pay yourself second. The second use of income must be for personal savings. Obey God, pay God, and then pay yourself. You need to have some savings. A wise man saves and has possessions. Proverbs 21.20 says, There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. You should have some possessions. You should have some savings. You should have some substance to yourselves. If you think about that verse, sometimes I like to think about the words that God chooses. He just doesn't pick a word because it sounds good. He picks a word because he means it. It has value. It says there, oil. Now, we're not talking about J. Paul Getty and standard oil. We're talking about olive oil. And if you think about olive oil, it's something basic, especially if you live in the Middle East. It's something useful. Use it for cooking. Use it for all uh, other things, and also, too, it's tradable. If you have don't have enough wheat, 
you can trade some of your oil for somebody else's wheat. That's the basis of our capitalistic system. But, and we need to have some of those things in our house. It does not say a 52-inch flat-screen LCD TV. It doesn't say luxuries. If you've got a house full of toys and trinkets, that really isn't possessions in God's opinion. You need practical things. You need, like it says, oil in the dwelling of the wise, something that is practical, that is useful, and not toys and luxuries. Savings is a way to hide yourself from the coming evil. And if you're like me and a few other men in this congregation, we see a coming evil. This spending is not sustainable. And there may be, barring the Lord's intervention, great financial evil coming on this country. And that's why I'm preaching this today, because I foresee evil, and we need to get our financial houses in order. Proverbs 27.12 says, A prudent man foreseeth the evil, and hideth himself, but the simple pass on, and are punished. And that's the way most of America is going to be. They're going to get punished because they haven't obeyed God and these simple rules. Good Mormons, I don't know if you know much about the Mormons, but a good Mormon, a really good Mormon, will have six months worth of savings in his possession. Six months worth of living expenses. He can live for six months with what he has stored up for him. And that's a Mormon. It says in Luke 18, For the children of this world are in this gener- or in their generation wiser than the children of light. We should be wiser than that. That's another reason for having savings, paying yourself first. Because the children, the Mormons, they are not children of light. We are the children of life. We should be able to outdo them and should outdo them in this practical uh, aspect of our life. Also, with paying yourself second is another aspect that I stick in here, and that is to have an emergency fund. I run into people all the time in the glass business, and they call me up and they say, how much for a windshield, how much for a door glass, et cetera, et cetera. And I give them a price, and they say, oh, okay, well, when I get my money together, I'll call you back. Well, as Christians, we should have an emergency fund so that when something breaks, the water heater goes out, you shred a tire, blow up a transmission, whatever, you have an emergency fund, and you can just write the check and take care of it and not have to worry about where's the money going to come from getting your money together. That's not how a Christian should live their life. But once you use that fund, you better put it back immediately type thing. But you should have an emergency fund. That's just plain prudence. Now, so you're an older member in here. You think you're saved up quite a bit. You're in my generation or older. And you say, oh, okay, well, savings is cool. That's what... Charlie says, and the Bible says, and I'm covered on that one. But there's another verse in the Bible that 
you should be remember, and that is Second Corinthians 2.14, which said, For the children ought not to lay up for their parents, but the parents for the children. So us older members in here ought to think about how much savings we have. And is there enough there not only to take care of us in our old age, but to leave an inheritance for your kids? If you don't have some savings, and if you die and spend your last penny, you really haven't done a job because you're supposed to leave an inheritance. And there's lots of different inheritance, but this one's talking about money. You should be able to pass on something to, to your kids, to the next generation. So you need to consider that as well. Rule number four, minimize expenses. The most important factor in America's pending financial disaster is their undisciplined spending. And that comes down to that. It's not like we're a poor country and we don't have a lot of money. We just spend more than we take in. We spend it on frivolous things, and that's going to be our downfall, <coughs> is that unbridled spending. Proverbs 21.17 says, He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man, he that loveth wine and oil shall be shall not be rich. So you need to control your spending. You can always do with less. Some of you younger folks really ought to go talk to your grandparents and find out what little they did with. Some of you ought to go and talk to some of the brothers that went to Malaysia in the last couple of trips and see what very little these saints of, saints of God live with. You live a luxurious life. Right. And all those things that you have, you really don't need. So you must keep your spending under control. All those toys and trinkets and things like that are nice, but there's only there's a time and a place for those. Matthew 6.19 says, Lay not up for yourselves treasure upon earth, where moth and rust do corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust corrupt, and where thieves do not break in or steal. We have been heard this morning how we can lay up some spiritual treasures, and we also need to remember to lay up some earthly treasures for those for this specific purpose of taking care of ourselves. Ecclesiastes 4, 6 says, Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Um, you do not need all the stuff that you think you need. You probably don't need all the stuff you have. And as Randy Hester says, it's all got a hot future. So if you're not going to have it that long anyways. If you're going to waste money, and I mean waste it, on, on things that really aren't necessary, then you might as well have not earned it. Because with taxation, you've got to learn, earn a penny and a half to be able to spend a penny. Because you've got to earn it, the government taxes it, and then you can spend it. So you might as well not even earn it. 
But the Bible condemns that because it says in Proverbs 18.9, He also that is slothful in his work is a brother to him that is a great waster. So if you're not prudent with your money, if you don't spend, if you spend more than you should, you spend it on frivolous things, then you might as well not have earned it, which the Bible, you very well know, condemns. We're supposed to work hard, smart, prudently, etc., etc. But they're no different. To waste it is to be slothful. Proverbs 23.20 says, Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh, for the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. We're not put here to live a good life. We're not here to put live the high life. We're not here to live the lifestyles of the rich and famous. We're here to give glory to God. That is our primary duty. Living a good life in this world is not our calling. So keep that in mind when you're spending, when you're thinking about spending. If you try to live the rich and famous lifestyle, you're stupid. If you do it with debt, you're really stupid. Which brings me to the next point, which is minimize debt. Wise men will limit debt. Debt. I consider debt like a snake. Debt is something that if you have it, you better keep a tight grip on it. You better hold it. You better control it. And if you can, you need to get rid of it. Because debt will bite you if you don't control it. And that's one thing that America is so, so bad about is credit cards, loans, and all that stuff. Debt is rampant. But we as Christians should be different from the world. And if we use debt, we need to control our debt. Proverbs 22.7 says, And the borrower is servant to the lender. So we need to control that debt. And of course our society doesn't help us do that. Our government, our tax laws promote spending and punish uh, thrift or savings. Right now, we've got basically 0% interest rates. So if you're a saver, you get a half a percent, three quarters of a percent on your CD. But if you're a borrower, a spender, you can borrow vast amounts of money for a couple of percent. So our government, again, is doing against what God's law says and, and providing penalties for savers and rewards those that borrow and spend. And that's their policy. That's why we're in the financial shape that we're in. Uh, let's see. Only borrow for necessary things and make sure you make all your payments. If you have to borrow, and there's some things that are prudent in borrowing, then make sure you make your payments. Because if you don't make your payments, that's sin. You're stealing. You're covenant breaking. And all those things like that. So if you have to borrow, 
or do borrow, then make sure you make all your payments. Proverbs 28.22 says, He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye, and considereth not that poverty shall come upon him. We don't want to look like we're rich, or shouldn't want to look like we're rich. We don't want to brag about being rich, because that's not our calling. You know, the old adage, somebody buys a brand new fancy car, and people say to them, say among themselves, boy, he must be doing really well. Look at that car out there. Well, the problem is that car is not bought. That car has been financed with debt. And that's something we should avoid in our thinking and our actions. And that is trying to look rich, prosperous, and well. Be humble. Little is better than great riches. Last point. Minimize risk. Wisely protect your savings, your labor, and your future plans from catastrophe. Oh, I'm not doing good today. Insurance is a way that we can minimize risk. So some insurance is prudent and is valuable to protect your savings, those things that you have worked for, because your savings is your labor. And also, too, to protect yourself and your plans, your life, from a catastrophic event. If you get sick, get deathly sick, that changes your whole life. And that's one thing is the sickness. The next thing is how do you pay for the sickness, the lack of work, all of those other things. So insurance is is prudence. Proverbs 13.23 says, Much food is in the tillage of the poor. But there is that is destroyed for want of judgment. Want of judgment is going back to that foreseeing evil again and protecting yourself. So you need to minimize risk with insurance and co-signing loans and all those other things like that. Think about where you're heading, where you are, where you're vulnerable. An army does that all the time. Where am I vulnerable? Who's got my flank covered? And we should do that ourselves in our lives. Instead of flipping on ESPN and seeing what's on, you ought to take 30 minutes and sit down with your wife and figure out where we are financially, where we're going, what our goals are, what our plans are, how are we going to get there, and should do a little bit of planning. Very little of America plans anymore. It just kind of happens. They are addicted to entertainment and amusement and not much thinking or planning. Barring the grace of God, we are headed for some financial hard times. And we as Christians should be prepared and must be prepared. Jonathan has stated in this pulpit before that if you're not got your financial house in order, then don't be looking to the church for help. We need to be prudent, save, and obey the rules of Bible economics to ward off what may be coming. We pray that it's not. 
We're praying that God will sustain this country, that he will convince our leaders of the folly of debt, but it doesn't look like it is that way at this time. So we need to keep our powder dry, evaluate our financial situation, and make plans and execute those plans in the financial realm. Thank you. Amen.